This is Better Ideas, and I'm your host, architect Pete Calhoun. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been having a talk about sustainable living, and I was throwing down the challenge to grow something that you could actually eat. Well, I could actually eat. I'm not a gardener, and I live right next to the ocean, so the conditions aren't ideal, but I'm willing to give it a go. But if you have any tips and tricks, please pass them on. Check out the hashtag gardening versus Peter. That's hashtag gardening versus Peter. You can follow my progression and I'd really appreciate any of your thoughts. Positive, please. Now this week, author, chef and photographer Sophie Henson is having a chat. And although we've been talking sustainability, she's got a really interesting take on this. Social sustainability, sort of sustaining the community, sustaining the local village in random acts of kindness. This is really interesting. The first up, Jason Hodges has come in with some tips on winter gardening and how to warm up the backyard while creating some moments you may remember forever. Well, winter's coming on. It's time to pull out the uh, the beanie, pull up the footy scarf. One man who loves an old footy jumper is Jason Hodges. Jason's getting cool. What footy jumper are you wearing? South Sydney Rabbitohs. Oh, dear. Any, anyone but Manly. <laughs> I hear you there. Gardens are usually a summer thing. What do you think about, though, in your garden when it's coming into winter? Well, you think about a beautiful winter's day, mm. say between 10 and 3, just before that chill kicks in in the afternoon. We can actually do more physically because we're not getting knocked around by the heat. Yeah. You know, <laughs> We're not sweating our clacker out. Right. And so it's a great time to do things like mulch the garden right. because it's a lot easier doing it when it's 18 and 21 degrees than when it's 30 and 35 degrees. Right. So there's no holiday for a gardener then? Well, no, this is when you get to work on the garden right. rather than in the garden. So it's like that working on your business rather than in your business. If you're serving uh, someone all day, you're not improving the business. Yep. But if you take a day off once a week and you actually go, how can I do my books better? How can I market myself better? That's working on the business. So this is when you work on the garden. Right. So it's a great time to be doing that. It's still good to feed your garden and feed your lawn this time of year. People think that you don't have to do it. Why feed a garden in spring when it's going to grow out of spite anyway? Every garden grows in spring. Mm-hmm. But if you can get a little bit of growth through winter, when spring comes, your garden's already okay. ahead So what go. are some of the points we could look at for working on your garden? I'd look at my deciduous trees because they don't have leaves on them. So you can see where branches are rubbing against each other or where there's damage from maybe a large bird or a stray football or something like that. So you can prune your deciduous trees a lot easier than when they're covered in foliage and you've got to guess and you've got to get in between all that foliage. I'd look at what's not working in your garden, maybe the damp areas or where your lawns might be a little bit bare. Think about redesigning those spaces. Lawn isn't the answer for everything. As much as I love my lawn, mm. if it's under the heavy shade of a, a brick wall or a house or something like that and it doesn't get sun for nine months of the year, it ain't going to grow. So it's a good time to realise that because you'll see it's damp and it might have a smell to it. And you can actually change the garden bed or raise it up or try a new lawn, something like that. All those jobs are much easier in winter. The other thing about winter is, of course, you know, we're looking for, for sources of heat and uh, a good old fire pit. And I know you've installed a bunch. What's some tips on putting in fire pits? Everyone should have one. Should yep. be uh, part of the uh, signing up to be an Aussie. Don't worry about yep. whether you can sing the national anthem or you know who Don Bravin is. <laughs> Everyone should have a fire pit. Oh. Now, I know I've spoken about water features before. I was faking my enthusiasm. There's lots of maintenance that goes along with them. But a fire pit can change your life. Right. You can sit there on your own and you can solve the world's problems. Round the fire. You can sit there with the bride 
and you can be romantic. And looking at me and hearing the way I speak, that's a stretch, <laughs> but I can do it. You can sit there with your best mates and you can reminisce. You can have 20 people over and you've still got something to talk about when someone awkwardly fluffed and you heard it in the corner. <laughs> you can have a 21st or an 18th there and everyone will gather around it. It can be as ugly as a 44-gallon drum or the guts out of a washing machine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be aesthetic. But here we go. If you've got a beautiful, good-looking one, I have one in my backyard that is like a sculpture. It was made by a lady named Carrie Ann. Her surname escapes me. Yeah. It's called Fire Globes Australia. <laughs> right. And it is a family heirloom, and I've only had it for about 18 months. It's got my car carved into it. It's oh, got my Buxus balls, my sunflowers, my family, my dog. So when the fire's behind it, it's like watching my history of my life, yeah, the things that I'm proudest of. Casting shadows and creating memories. Yeah, so as long as you, if you ring it, don't ask for a Game of Thrones one or one with dragons in it because she hates them. But Australiana, oh my God, she does it better than anyone else. I actually commissioned her to do one. Uh, a young boy at my daughter's school um, passed away in year two. They asked me for a sculpture, and I just turned the fireball into a sculpture. I planted it out with succulents, and it was absolutely stunning. But just a rusty bowl. You can make something out of, you know, those locked-together blocks that you can buy from Adbri. They're really easy to put together. Just be conscious of the safety thing. Mm. Just like the, the ponds and the water features, you can't leave it on and walk away from it. You know, because kids, little kids will just be drawn to it like a magnet. Like we are, but we know that we can't get so close. We're talking natural fire. Is that what you've got, a natural fire? Because there's all sorts of um, so there, fuels. So there's gas. There's electric ones where things move and they try and make yeah. it look like... The gas one's great, but, you know, it might be good on a new build where you've got the plumbing in for the barbecue and you just run a lead for that. And the electric ones, I don't think that they're, they're good enough yet for outdoor use. The... Is it ethanol? That ethanol, they, yes, it's ethanol, another There's source. a company called EcoSmart, yep. and they do some really high-end stuff in stainless steel. They do the, the Core 10 rusty stuff as well. Mm. Um, beautiful. You buy two-litre bottles, and it burns all night, and it probably costs you 5 or $6 to run it all night. Super important, if you're in a tiny little courtyard in a complex, and your neighbour's windows are four or five metres away, you can't chop down the old hardwood paling fence and start to burn it, because even though you're having fun and you might like the smell of it, mm. They don't want that smell when they hit the sheets at night and go, yeah. oh, I was going to go romantic and now I feel like I'm in the outback. <laughs> Maybe that's my problem. That could be it, Chase. We've nailed out- it. I We've sm- worked it out. I smell of the outback and I'm trying to get romantic. <laughs> and you're burn- burning the neighbour's fence. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> but I slip, a- I slip a card in the letterbox the next day and I get the job out of it. Uh, we're talking five features with Jason Hodges. You're right, there's all sorts of fuels. We can have gas, we can have electric, we can have the ethanol, but there's nothing like a good old real fire, is there? There's nothing like a great old wood fire outside. Remember the movie The Castle? You betcha. Well, my dad watched that and thought it was a documentary. (laughs) He he goes, this isn't funny, this is us. That's life. We bought a house when I was seven years old. He built the barbecue the first week, albeit he's a bricklayer, so it was the first thing he did. Every Tuesday night, we had a... Like a fire pit because we had a barbecue every Tuesday night. Mm. Best thing about it was if it was in the middle of summer, he always had two beers. So if you had two beers in the middle of summer when it was a 40-degree day as a bricklayer, the barbecue would be over in 30 seconds and we'd be inside eating blue meat. Mm. If it was in the middle of winter, 
it would take him a little bit longer to drink his two beers and the barbie would be back inside and it would be black. So <laughs> when I go to a restaurant, I'm not fussy about how well my meat's cooked because I remember that. Yeah. So it can be a practical fire pit, hmm. but it can also be something that's very aesthetic as well. What are some tips, though, for anyone, whether it be a, a beautiful designer garden or just creating a beautiful gathering point in the backyard or, or back porch? The most important thing is you've got to be safe. So don't do it underneath a a tree or a canopy of trees because you never know a flame might mm. get up and lick up there. And the other thing I like is having seats that might be built in but at various depths from that. So, you know, if you put it in the centre and everyone's two metres away from it, well, you might be too hot or too cold. So I like it if you can move the fire pit so that, you know, might get it to a metre or it might be four metres or whatever it is, and just enjoy it. The best thing about it is when you put it out, there is zero maintenance. I've got a confession to make. Jason does the best bonfire on we, your place down at Berry. We, you can see it from Kiama. You can see it from Nara. But saying that, it's important <laughs> that you're responsible yep. and you make sure you have water. So I had a hose. It might have got away from us a couple of times, but I did have running water and I rang the authorities and told them that I was going to do it. And on the day that I did it, it wasn't windy. There is evidence that looks like you and me are on fire, but I guarantee you we're not. Check out the Acast app. There's pictures of Jason and I around this bonfire. Honestly, you, you, you could it was, it was an ancient lighthouse. So you could see you could you, ships were sort of using it as guidance out to the Pacific. It was that it was that big. We've talked about fire pits and fire features. We've talked about creating memories and singing flame trees. I am you are Jace Love a fire pit. It's part of my childhood. It's part of who I am, and I look forward to my city kids understanding the importance of sitting around it and. I said it as a joke before, but solving the world's problems. Oh, <laughs> going to Jason's place is an experience. And when he does a bonfire, let me tell you, you can see it from space. We're moving on now with a chat with Sophie Henson. Now, Sophie's not a scientist. She's not a sociologist. She's a mother, a city girl who has moved to the country, but has had an insight, has had a eureka moment in terms of sustainability and what it actually means. She's written a book called A Basket by the Door, which is really, well, it's really about just simple, random acts of kindness. We talk about sustaining the planet or growing your own or harvesting the sun. Well, she's about sustaining your local community, growing some kindness and harnessing some good old-fashioned generosity. Okay, so if you've come all the way from, <laughs> is it the west of Orange? Yeah, we're about half an hour west of Orange. Right, mm. and you've come all the way to the to the city. You found a parking spot so you can I relax. Did, I, did. <laughs> I grew up in Sydney, actually, so I should know better. But um, yes, I think I've been a bit spoilt by our wide open um, <laughs> streets and easy parking in the country. Do you get stressed when you come back into a big city? Well, look, Sydney is still my hometown, so um, not not so much. I just I underestimate how long it will take me to get anywhere when I'm in Sydney. <laughs> I still do that. Yeah. You've come from the country and obviously, mm -hmm. you know, the beats, the rhythm of life does slow down and it's a more relaxing thing. I mean, people can't wait to get out of the city, but there is this ingrained sense of community 
as mm. soon as you get out of the, of the country. And this is something you're trying to expel and get back into to city folks' minds as well, mm. that sense of community. Yeah, and, and that's not to say that I'm sure – I know communities can be in an apartment building in the street, in a suburb, but I guess my experience is, is living in the country and having a family in the country. And I feel like it is it is just a reflex action when there's a bushfire or when there's um, a drought or when someone's just had a baby or someone's grieving – the first thing people do is just start cooking and making food and, and dropping it off and delivering it. And I think it just means so much to people because it doesn't mean not only I'm, I want you to be fed and nourished, it's that you, you're worth my time, you're worth half an hour or half a day of my time because I, I care about you and I want you to be eating well. Mm. I think it just means so much on so many levels. I'm right into sort of the history of traditions and, and, mm. and different cultures. Mm. I, I really find that interesting and mm. how it's embedded and, and influenced architecture. But in terms of, of community, there's traditional comfort foods, isn't there, that mm-hmm. people just sort of naturally resort to in times of crisis. And, you know, there's the classic, the lasagna, and it is, it's useful for a reason. You know, it's in a tray, it's easy, easy to transport, you can freeze it, you can reheat it, all that kind of stuff. And I think also people do fall back on those classics when times are difficult because it's like... I can't deal with any more challenges. I just mm. need to eat something that I know what it's going to taste like. I know it's going to feed a lot of people. I know that it's going to be successful. Comfort food by its very definition is food that we know and feel comforted by because we've got memories attached to it. So mm. whether whatever your food culture is, whether it's a, you know, a rice pudding from Denmark or whether it's congee from China or whatever it might be, I think it's that sense of taking you back somewhere that a time that's maybe more comforting, you know. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's not what you're cooking. It's the actual effort of doing it that mm. people sort of appreciate. And mm-hmm. they think that someone's actually gone to the effort of doing it. I can't cook. I mean, <laughs> hands up. I can't. But, I th- you know, but if someone leaves something simple, it's mm. the mere act of doing it, which is the most comfortable Absolutely. Thing. You know, so maybe you've got a, a lemon tree or maybe you, you grow apples. So you might leave a basket of lemons or apples by someone's door. And that might come back to you in kind with a little jar of lemon curd or an apple cake or something. So I think... It's that it's that just starting the, the ball rolling and, you know, knocking on your neighbour's door and say, look, I was making this lemon cake and here's one for you and, you know, not expecting anything back. But those little acts of kindness, um, which to you doesn't take a lot of time or money, can mean the world to someone who might be feeling a bit isolated or maybe just too sick or too heartbroken or whatever it might be to get off the couch and go out and do it themselves. So, mm. And so in preparation, you, you're basically just doubling up on the ingredients. It's really not that much effort. No, I don't think so. I mean, yes, it's a a bit more ingredients, but if you're going to make one cake, why not make two? You know, really, if you've got another cake tin or or it doesn't have to be the same shape or size even, you know, just be generous. Let's all try and be a bit more generous because it doesn't really cost us anything except for a little bit more time. Maybe you have to grease and line one more cake tin or whatever it might be. I think as much of that kind of you might be thinking oh I saw Susie down the street today and she looked a bit stressed I might just drop this I'll make two batches of that slow cooked casserole and drop one down to her that will make Susie's year probably Mm. you know just to not only that oh my god dinner is sorted tonight just to know somebody's actually caring and thinking about her look I think in the country and 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 I'm guessing here this this is sort of second nature in some of those communities you're a city girl and you sort of came into this environment you think there's a message here. You're just talking about stuff that which really should be part of our community, naturally. Yeah, and I think we, we just kind of have forgotten that to do it somehow. We just need that little reminder. And it, for me, it was when I, not that long after moving to the country, I my husband and I bought our baby home from hospital, Alice. And this was 11 years ago. And there was a basket by my door. Someone had driven the 30Ks out of town and dropped, you know, lamb wow. shanks and a bottle of wine and a little bunch of flowers. And I just could not believe it. I was 
it was also day three and it was like quite, you know, (laughs) collapsed into floods of tears. This is amazing. But it really, I have never forgotten it, ever, ever, ever. It was the kindest, most thoughtful thing. And so that really was the very beginning of kind of the idea for this book. And and it certainly gave me a reminder, oh, I'm going to do that for someone when they have a baby. So it just takes you to do it and then someone else will do it. And then it's sort of that kind of ripple effect, I think. You decide what's, what's in season. I mean, how do you decide what's the best thing to leave when? Well, certainly... Seasonality is a big thing for me in cooking. Um, you know, in the middle of winter, that's when you feel like your leafy greens, you feel like more bolstering food and soups and casseroles. And, you know, then you've got that amazing citrus to give you a good dose of vitamin C and that kind of hydration that you need. But certainly as well, I think the big thing is just stopping for a minute and thinking, who am I cooking for? Where are they at? Where's their head at? What are they going to feel like? And then and then cooking what actually they're going to feel like rather than what maybe you, you're up to. I was talking to a friend the other day who many years ago she suffered some some a very tragic loss of a child and she was saying how someone very kindly bought a, a chocolate cake, which was lovely, but but chocolate just wasn't at all what she felt like at that time. It felt too much, too celebratory or, you know, so when you're kind of in that the depths of grief, maybe a, a fruitcake or a ginger loaf or just thinking about w- what would I maybe feel like or mm. w- where is that person at? What can I give them? And maybe it's you make a lasagna, but you cut it up and put in little portions so it's easy just to microwave or heat up so it's just as manageable and easy as possible for people. I think that's a really important point. It's the mere gesture and the celebration of food, with, which is as ancient as, as human civilization itself, just touching on some real raw emotions. Absolutely. And it's not just about difficult times. You know, I talk a lot about celebrating with food. You know, maybe you've got a a friend who's just got a promotion at work. Make her a cake and bring it into work. Or you've got a friend who's gone over and above for you in the office. Make her some lunch and say, look, you take that pasta salad or whatever it is outside, sit in the sun for 10 minutes and I will cover for you. Like these little things that cost you nothing Mm. can make such a big difference to somebody's day or month. You've written two books, Local is Lovely and Basket by the door. What are, what are some of the common themes? The adjective I always try and use is friendly. I want it to feel like, I want them to feel like books that are easy, that the recipes are achievable, that they're going to turn out exactly how they look in the photo, um, the photos. I shot both books myself. So every dish in the book is actually on its way out to someone's doorstep or to our table or to a picnic. So I, f- I f- hope that what it kind of lacks in maybe polish. There's a lot of cookbooks that just, you know, there's a whole team of people making them and they're amazing. But this is very real, you know. It, I shot it through the seasons. I had a year and a half to shoot it. I hope people feel like, oh, I can make that. That's simple, easy, tasty food. Mm. Um, because I think we, we've all become a little bit stressed about food and all these cooking shows and it's a competition and it's against the clock and it shouldn't be like that. It should be just easy and simple, I think. When I knew I was going to be chatting to you, I thought, well, I better do a little bit of research on <laughs> this. And I thought to myself, giving food as opposed to another sort of gift is actually perfect because if you make someone a card, right, or you, <laughs> you get your kids to make a card, the person receiving the card goes, oh, this is great. How long do I need to keep this? You know, <laughs> My fridge is crowded. <laughs> I know, there's a sense of guilt. When do, I, when do I throw this card away? <laughs> but in fact, giving food, you have to get rid of it. You have to eat it. Yes, so it exactly. sort of alleviates the sort of pe- person you're presenting it with with that sort of dilemma. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but also, like, there's a lot of recipes in the book for preserves and, like, salts and sugars and things like that that can sit on a shelf for a while. So I think often when people are going through um, maybe a new baby or a time of grief, sometimes their fridge can be completely overloaded with with perishables. So Mm. maybe also thinking about 
about that. We had a bushfire near our place last year, February last year, and they the RFS put out a call to say, look, can you guys just send some food in on a Facebook page to to our um, headquarters because all of, you know the volunteers are hungry. And I went th- that afternoon with some food, and they had to rent two extra cool rooms. They were groaning, <laughs> and eventually they had to say, look, we, we can't no actually more. take any more. Thank you so much, but we're full. We're talking sustainability and sustainability for our community, extending the hand of of, of goodwill of, of good gesture. What sort of traditional communities, because the Greeks have always traditionally done it, the Italians have done it, what have we lost, do you think, in modern Australia that we need to be reminded about these things? I'm guilty of this as much as the next person. We just think I'm too busy, too busy to stop and, you know, check in on someone. It used to be just a gut, you know, just a reflex action. Oh, I'm making this dish, I'll make double and I'll give it next door neighbour to Nonno or whoever. And there was a great story and a, a woman was telling me about her great-grandmother. They lived at Blaney, which is about four hours west of Sydney. And when her son moved to Sydney for his job, she would do a big bake, you know, cook all their lunch, all their meals for the weekend on a Friday and she'd make a spanakopita for him as well and she'd wrap it up in a tea towel, take it to the train station at Blaney and give it to the conductor <laughs> oh, no. and call him and he would meet it on the other end and it'd still be just warm, you know, and wow. he'd have his meal for the weekend and I, I loved that story. Wow. Oh, that's yeah, a great story. that's cute. When you go back to the country and you, you know, go to a country community, do you think that the spirit there is inherently more, you know, prolific in terms of what we're talking about? I think at the moment it's definitely there because, as you would know, a lot of country communities are in the depths of drought. Mm. And I think in times like that, people do really rally. You know, you know, the CWA membership is is really strong at the moment. You know, when there's a bushfire, when there's a flood or, or anything, people people do rally and bring that together. But it, certainly in my experience, food and the sharing of food and the making of food is, is a really... I mean, you, you don't go to any barbecue or Sunday lunch mm. in, in the country. Well, I don't, without bringing something. Mm. It's bring, What can I bring is the first thing you ask when you're invited to someone's house and you're you know, bringing a plate or bringing some slices or whatever it might be. I would love to think that that is alive and kicking in communities everywhere. I think it's just we do forget, like we just think we're so busy, but then we spend eight hours a week watching Game of Thrones, you know, so it's just making that bit of time and and you probably find you really enjoy the process once you do it. Sophie, I, 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 can't, I really am enjoying this chat, I really am, <laughs> because it, it's a, it gives a different angle on sustainability. It mm. absolutely does. It's a really important message. And we've talked about slowing time down and forgetting about time, but I've, I've got to be conscious of time. Yes, so yes. I know I appreciate that. I've got to bring you back. <laughs> I've got give, my half an hour car park <laughs> that's too. Right, that's <laughs> right. We've got the clock's ticking. Give us some tips people should remember when they're thinking about metaphorically leaving that basket mm-hmm. by the door. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is be careful of dogs. Some <laughs> think there may be a dog by the door as well that yeah, might want right. to eat that basket. I think keep it simple. Think seasonally. Keep it simple. Um, Obviously think about food safety. You know, do you need ice packs? Does it need to be in an esky rather than a basket? All that kind of stuff. And and put yourself in the recipient's shoes and think, okay, what are they going to need from me? I also think maybe you don't always have to ring the bell and and come in and have a cup of tea and, you know, because if people are feeling a bit fragile, they might not need to be entertaining. So my friend calls it love bombing. You just leave a a basket by someone's door, drive away and then just text incoming, you know, so (laughs) you've been love bombed. The basket by the door is the latest book that you're you're releasing. What are the big headings in this book? Um, So it's organised fundamentally into seasons, into the four seasons. And then within each season, I've got like mini chapters. So there's bolster, nourish, cheer, gather and celebrate. 
Um, so the celebrate is more like celebrating the season. So it's preserving jams and curds and um, sauces and cordials and things. Gather is obviously bringing people together. So there's picnics by a river, there's Christmas, there's all sorts of different feasts for bringing people together. Comfort is like there's a chapter with a whole like big thing of chocolate mousse and margaritas for your heartbroken friend or so it's going to be okay. <laughs> Nourish, um, just nourishing new mums, sick people. There's a chapter on like trays in bed, like chicken soups, obviously, orange jellies, things like that. Bolster, that's the kind of food I think you might make for a wake or, you know, or a 21st or food that really needs to feed and bolster a lot of people. If I was to leave a basket by your door, mm-hmm. what would you want to find in it? Oh, well, right now, I would love... Actually, there's a recipe in the book for my friend Anna's minestrone, like a beautiful big minestrone with lots of veggies and lots of, you know, maybe like a farro or a grain in there as well. Because Mostly because I'm heading home tonight. I've been away a lot recently. And I think my husband, who's doing an incredible job, they've been having a lot of spag bowls. So maybe <laughs> some soup with lots of veggies in there for yeah. all of us might be a good thing. Sophie, <laughs> thanks for dropping a few love bombs. <laughs> my pleasure. Well, the random acts of kindness that Sophie was talking about got me thinking, I wonder how many different types of random acts of kindness there are. So I'm going to start talking to people, ringing up mates, colleagues and so on and so forth and asking them whether they have love-bombed a random act of kindness or whether they've heard of one. With me is Graham Rowe, Graham from Better Homes and Guns. Have you got an example of random act of kindness? Yeah, I do, mate. Um, I think the simplest ones are... Leaving, you know, like when people uh, leave the basket by the door, like we've been talking about, for me is when the plate of spare fruit out on the front fence from your citrus, from your mango, whatever, whatever you're not going to eat, leave out for someone else. And a modern take of that is people like me are all plant nerds and have a plant collection. Ones you don't want, leave them out the front. You know, one man's trashy plant is another man's treasure plant. Or if your, your flower garden is going absolutely off its head, cut and leave some bouquets out the front around Mother's Day, around any, anything. Just leave some flowers out there. Hey, you know what? I'd love to hear some other examples of random acts of kindness. I reckon probably the greatest one is leaving blood. I mean, isn't it? I mean you'll hear that all the time, leave, leaving blood. That's a, a great community sort of random acts of kindness. But listen, if you've got some examples, love to hear them. Send them through. Record them on your phone, then send them through to podcast at 7.com.au. Podcast at 7.com.au. Au. Now, next week, Fast Ed is coming in to talk about his ideas for doubling up on recipes. Now, this week on Better Homes and Gardens, Karen is cooking fried rice with duck. That's 7pm on 7 this Friday night. Now, don't forget to subscribe and let your friends know. Connect, connect with me on Instagram and follow along my gardening challenge to grow something I can eat. It's hashtag gardening versus Peter. Now, Better Ideas is a Seven West media production. Loretta Farrell is the producer. Nikki Hamilton is the executive producer. And I'm your host, Pete Calhoun.